This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 20 of Inside COVID-19. Coming up, medical aid holiday for hundreds of thousands of companies and individuals, a reality check of how the lockdown is affecting poor people in South Africa, evidence that black Americans and Brits are harder hit by COVID-19 than other population groups, and an in-depth report on how the coronavirus made the jump from animals to humans. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, a report released on Friday by the Ivy League Stanford University raises serious questions around projected mortality rates of COVID-19, including the prospect of 2 million Americans dying, which subsequently triggered drastic lockdown actions to slow the spread of the virus. These projections included the World Health Organization's estimated case-to-fatality rate of 3.4%, which now appears to be far higher than the reality. A representative sample of 3,300 residents of Santa Clara County in California by 17 Stanford team members concluded that actual COVID-19 infections were between 50 and 85 times higher than the number of confirmed cases. And that suggests most people who contract COVID-19 recover without knowing that they were infected. These conclusions were supported by a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, where testing of 212 pregnant mothers showed an actual infection rate 10 times higher than the known cases in New York, whose residents have been more actively tested than anywhere else in the United States. The Wall Street Journal reports similar proportions of vastly higher actual infections to reported cases are being discovered elsewhere, including 30 times in Robbio, Italy, 27 times in Denmark and 10 times in Iceland. The research suggests the COVID-19 death toll is far closer to that of seasonal flu than was initially predicted. If scientifically confirmed, this would be welcome news for South Africa as it prepares for a gradual relaxation at the end of the month after a five-week lockdown. The confinement achieved the objective of flattening the infection curve and preparing its health services for an inevitable COVID-19 spike when things open up. It has also been educating citizens about the need for regular hand-washing avoiding physical contact when greeting and other forms of social distancing. South Africa's Department of Health said China has assisted with the supply of personal protective equipment, India with sending over medication, and that 180 Cuban doctors, specialists in primary health care, are coming to the country. On Saturday evening, the country had just over 3,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19, a daily increase of 9%. There were two more deaths, taking the total to 52, with 108,000 people now having been tested. Stock markets continue to shrug off the economic impact of the COVID-19 shutdowns on economies. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed on Friday, having enjoyed its best fortnight in more than 80 years, 
gaining 15%. That cut the Dow's loss for 2020 thus far to a modest 10%, while the tech-rich Nasdaq is only 3.6% below where it started in January. The rebound in share prices suggests last month's sell-off is set to be recorded as the shortest bear market in history. Globally, confirmed COVID-19 infections are rapidly approaching 2.5 million, with 162,000 deaths registered, 34,000 of them in the US, 23,000 in Italy, 20,000 in Spain and 19,000 in France. Data on the Johns Hopkins University coronavirus site says black Americans and other historically disadvantaged groups are experiencing disproportionately high infection and mortality rates. The university says that while black Americans represent 13% of the population in U.S. states that are reporting by race, they account for 34% of COVID-19 deaths there. More on that story coming up. Last week, Discovery announced a number of measures to help members during the COVID-19 crisis, including financial assistance for individuals and small businesses. The relief comes through the offer of a two-month contribution holiday without losing any cover. I asked Discovery Health Chief Executive Dr. Ryan Noach whether there had been many requests for assistance. Unfortunately, we have had requests. Uh, many is, uh, is a difficult term to contextualize. Uh, we've got 1.8 million principal policyholders on the Discovery Health Medical Scheme. So in relative terms, a very small proportion of those have reached out to ask for help. But we are genuinely concerned about the state of the economy. There is absolutely a cash flow crunch. It's our considered view at Discovery that small and medium enterprise really is the backbone of our economy and is the antidote to poverty and to creating economic prosperity is, is the growth of small and medium enterprise. And we're particularly worried about that segment. What exactly is the contribution holiday that you are giving? How, how does it work? There are two elements to our contribution relief. One is for small and medium enterprise and one is for individuals. On the SMEs, it's very simple. We define SMEs for the purposes of this as any employer who has between 10 and 200 employees. And those employer groups that have been with Discovery Health Medical Scheme for six months or more and are in good standing with Discovery Health Medical Scheme are eligible to apply for a contribution holiday of two months. It would mean simply that they don't pay any premiums for the two months for any of their employees. However, during that time, they retain full cover. So they have the full benefits of the medical scheme throughout that period. These missed contribution payments would need to be caught up. As you well understand, Alec, the medical scheme is a mutual fund of members' reserves. It's members' money in the fund. And so it's very important that these members ultimately pay those reserves back. And they will have to agree to do so over about the next 12 months that follows after the lockdown is completed, when hopefully cash flow returns and these businesses can become liquid again. So for two months, they don't have to make any contributions. They're fully covered. Surely that costs something. It definitely costs something. The scheme has, Discovery Health Medical Scheme has put aside 2.3 billion rand as a fund from its reserves to subsidize these missed contributions. 
Uh, I think just to give you some context on the economics, the scheme bills just over 6 billion rand a month and has reserves of about 19 billion rand. So total capital reserves represent roughly three months of contributions. The statutory minimum is 25%, and if you think each month is about 8.5%, the, the maths adds up. So the scheme has about three months of contributions in reserve. And consequently, as you say, this is a cost that has to be funded and is done through a 2.3 billion rand fund that the scheme has set aside. So how many SMEs do you have on your books and how many are you expecting are going to take advantage of this? Uh, there are tens of thousands of them. Uh, we've made some assumptions how many are likely to take advantage. Only time will really tell, but we've limited the capacity of the scheme to handle this economic, this funding requirement to 2.3 billion rand. And what about individuals? Can they also take holidays? The starting point is to say that we absolutely wish we could give everybody on the scheme a contribution holiday because we are really deeply empathic and do recognize that many individuals are distressed. And, you know, given the economic ability to do so, We'd love to give everybody a contribution holiday. I think what you do understand is that at this time, there's no more important time than for the scheme to be liquid and to be able to pay the claims of its members. We're expecting an influx of claims related to COVID-19 if we do have a surge of infections. And if that happens, the scheme must and will stand by its members and pay those claims. So whatever decisions we take now, I have to make sure that the scheme remains solvent and able to pay claims throughout. With that in mind, we've had to segment to whom and how much support we can give. And so the one group that we have identified that we can support is members who have medical savings accounts with the medical scheme, and particularly those members where they have a positive cash balance in their medical savings account. And we've received an exemption from our regulator. The Council for Medical Schemes has given the scheme permission to allow members to use these MSA amounts to pay their premiums. What does that mean in reality for you and I? If we have an MSA and we have a positive cash balance, we can go onto the Discovery Health website and on the medical scheme page, we can choose one, two or three months, depending how much MSA we've got available. And we can use our MSA money to pay those contributions. Means no cash out of our pockets whatsoever during that period, but it does mean you're using up some of your medical savings account money. And that medical savings account is usually used for when you when you go and purchase uh, drugs or other, uh, go and see the doctors and so on. Is that correct? Is that what it's usually kept aside for? Primarily used to fund day-to-day -day claims, day-to-day -day expenses, just like the ones you described, stuff that happens out of hospital, unrelated to chronic diseases, unrelated to what we in the industry call prescribed minimum benefits. Uh, so we, we, we call it discretionary healthcare expenses, although we recognize with respect that it's not always entirely discretionary. If you're sick, you need care. And, you know, to your earlier question, how many people does this impact? There are about 270,000 individuals who are in a position today to utilize this benefit. So it does reach a large number of people. If I then have, say, 20,000 Rand in my savings account, I have a 6,000 rand a month contribution, and even though I might not be going through financial difficulties, I can still opt to take that 
20,000 rand and to allocate that over the next three months to sort out my contribution just in case something bad were to happen to me. You're absolutely entitled to do that. It would mean that for those three months, then you wouldn't have to pay any money at all to the scheme out of your pocket. You'd have to weigh up the decision around if you are expecting or if you do have any day-to-day healthcare expenses later in the year, sometime before the 31st of December this year, you would probably have a bigger self-payment gap. And so at that point in time, you would probably have to pay for those expenses out of your pocket as discretionary day-to-day healthcare. The point I'm getting at is it's not just people who are going through difficult times who can take advantage of this. Isn't that a a risk? Uh, It is a risk, but it's not for us to make that decision on behalf of members. Our role is to empower members with a means to give them some financial relief in this cash flow crunch period. And then it's on an opt-in basis. Any member who has the MSA balance, like the example you gave, is welcome to elect and opt-in to use it. Dr. Noach, what about the person who does get COVID-19 or wants to go for a test on COVID-19? Are they covered? Yes, uh, if they get COVID-19, all confirmed diagnoses of COVID-19 are fully covered. Right at the beginning of March, just before even the first South African infection was recorded, Discovery Health Medical Scheme launched a new benefit, the World Health Organization Outbreak Benefit, through quite nimble action from our regulator, we got it approved in a matter of two days. And through this benefit, we provide full funding for any confirmed cases of COVID-19. And that indemnifies the member entirely against the testing, the consultations, the treatment, the whole lot. Since then, about three weeks later, the Council for Medical Schemes did actually release an update to the legislation through a circular by which they declared COVID-19 a prescribed minimum benefit. And as such, all schemes are obliged to cover it in full. So you are definitely covered if you have a confirmed infection for sure. Your question related to testing, if you're not sure you've got it, at the moment, if you are negative, if you tested and you're negative, it is paid for out of your day-to-day benefits. Almost all of the Discovery Health Medical Scheme plans have a pathology day-to-day benefit in their design. And from the usual pathology costs, this funds the negative test. It's quite tough for the medical scheme to consider to pay all of that out of risk because it is our hope and our belief that testing will become ubiquitous. Uh, We actually need an environment where everybody's being tested all the time if they feel they should need to be. Uh, And that becomes quite a difficult thing to fund sustainably at this point. What about those who land up in hospital, in ICUs? That's a very expensive exercise. Are they covered as well? Fully covered in full from risk, from the risk funds of the scheme. As I described earlier, pursuant to the council's declaration of COVID-19 as a prescribed minimum benefit, it's actually an obligation now conferred upon schemes to fund it in full. Certainly the Discovery Health Medical Scheme will fund all of those costs in full. You're right, is a very um, challenging economic situation. If we have a wave of infections and a large number of ICU admissions like many other developed healthcare economies have seen, could be a huge economic burden on the scheme. And that goes to explaining why having reserves uh, in the case of healthcare catastrophes to pick up the cost on behalf of members and give them the indemnity that they seek 
is so very important. Let's just explore that a little more. What if we were Italy and had the numbers that they're seeing there, or even the United States, would the scheme be able to manage it? Absolutely, and without question, in the case of Discovery Health Medical Scheme, the answer is yes. Our actuarial team has done substantial outbreak modeling and linked to that uh, you know, economic forecasting for what different outbreak patterns look like. Before we knew that we would have the flat curve that we're living through now, we modeled based on what many other countries have been experiencing, including particularly the Italy model, which was very topical at the time. And I'm pleased to tell you the Discovery Health Medical Scheme has the financial strength and wherewithal to properly indemnify its members, even in the case of that type of severe outbreak. How many people in total in South Africa are covered by the various Discovery Health offerings? Discovery Health Medical Scheme indemnifies about 1.8 million principal members. And if you look at their families, their beneficiaries on the, on the plan with them, it's about 2.6, 2.7 million lives. So there's 2.7 million lives covered by Discovery Health Medical Scheme. In addition, Discovery Health, which is the administrator of the medical scheme, also administers 18 other medical schemes. And that represents about another 700,000 lives. Those are lives typically in employer-based medical schemes or restricted funds where an employer has their own medical scheme for their employees, typically large employer groups. In the total industry across South Africa, there are about 9 million lives in total insured by medical schemes across the industry. We're all relieved that our curve has been flat to date and that the growth in infections has been very slow. I think uh, we are deeply thankful for the very decisive and commendable measures that our presidency has taken to be brave to call a lockdown early, probably braver than any of us or braver than I could have been, did a very commendable thing and in hindsight has proven to be correct, call that lockdown early, sustain and extend the lockdown and now we're at the point of trading off the economic cost of the lockdown versus the health costs. I hope those two voices are equally heard at the table. I'm a doctor and I understand the health perspective, but I'm deeply concerned about the economic perspective. We need those voices to both be strong at the table, and we need to find a balance between that economic trade-off. I fear further extensions of the lockdown purely on the basis of the health risks would actually be more damaging in the medium to long term, considering the severe consequences of the uh, economic lockdown. So how do you see the best possible situation from here? Well, if you gave me a magic wand, I would want the current trend to continue. I would want a phased and responsible release from lockdown that allows us to kickstart the economy to get productive parts of the economy back, manufacturing and mining, where young, healthy people can go back to work with social distancing, with improved hygiene. I think the world will never look the same. But with all of those precautions and measures and proper screening and testing happening alongside that, to kickstart that productive part of the economy and in a phased basis, uh, release society back to uh, normal life. I, I say that in inverted commas. Because I don't think it will look the same as it used to. I think social distancing and these, you know, sanitation precautions are the way we're going to live for a long time. Certainly until we've got a vaccine and probably thereafter. 
So the best case scenario for me would be a steady flat curve, the economy starting again, lots of testing happening ubiquitously, freely accessible, reactive responses to where there's nodes of infectivity associated with quarantine and a healthcare system that's geared up and ready to deal with the infections as and when they come along. And just from maybe a little bit of left field, if we have social distancing and if we do wash our hands more often, we would then abandon many of the South African traits of kissing and hugging and shaking hands. And surely that would have an impact on things like flu, uh, the, the number of people who would be infected in a normal season. Absolutely. And a favorable impact on flu. I must say, I personally regret the thought of not being able to slap hands in a typical Ubuntu African handshake uh, or give a brother a squeeze uh, in, in a moment of, you know, affection. But I do think that is the new normal. I think we've got to absolutely come to terms with that. We can be nostalgic about it, but we shouldn't break the rules around that. We need to be disciplined. And that will change the pattern of not only this disease, but as you correctly point out, quite favorably, will change the pattern of all diseases that are spread by saliva droplets, which includes the, you know, the viral influenza and others. For many South Africans who live in townships, self-isolation proposed by government is just not viable. Plus, with the lockdown closing most businesses, cash is drying up while fear of food shortages and anger about restrictions on alcohol and cigarette sales has led to lootings and protests in various areas, including the Cape Flats and in Alexandra Township. Dr. Yaki Salir from the Institute for Security Studies spoke about these issues and other practical matters with my BizNews colleague Linda von Tilburg. There are a number of huge unknowns. Africa is largely an informal economy, so up to 80% of employment in Africa is in the informal sector. People live on the margins of survival, and, and therefore, if they don't have the opportunity to undertake economic activity, even in the informal sector, selling sweets on the side of the road or whatever, they, they literally can't survive. Now, there are some countries, South Africa would be one, where you have an expansive social grants program, but most African countries do not have that. So if you squeeze down economic activity and people lose their very marginal livelihood, it does become uh, an issue of can you survive in this environment? So there are huge challenges that face the continent. But having said that, because Africa has a, a very different population age structure, a much younger population, the median age in sub-Saharan Africa is about 19 compared to, let's say, about 44, 45 in the United Kingdom. We expect that the mortality burden is going to be significantly lower and that people will get sick, but maybe they will not get as sick as elderly people. But uh, th there are huge uncertainties with regard to those forecasts. Well, if people do have the choice that I might get the disease or I might starve and look at my family, they're hungry, they would obviously choose to feed their families. Yes, it is literally not possible for governments in Africa to enforce the kind of individual distancing and social clampdown that we've seen in high-income countries in Europe and elsewhere. So if you're living in an informal settlement or um, wherever, you have no choice but to undertake whatever activity is required to feed you and your family. 
Of course, Africa is also much more rural. Uh, large components of our economies are subsistence farming. It could be that large amounts of Africans living in rural in subsistence farming may provide a degree of survival ability as well as a degree of protection from the rapid spread of the disease if we have sufficient public awareness raising and public leadership, which of course is an, uh, an entirely separate matter. Well, in South Africa, as you just said, has a bigger safety net than other African countries for people in COVID-19. But there seems to be riots now. There seems to be unrest breaking out. Is the cause of that also people not being able to have a livelihood? South Africa has got very high crime rates and we have a very robust engagement and, and people take their rights very seriously. And we have had a series of, I would almost say, a tradition of riots in South Africa that come from the, in recent memory, from the anti-Zuma protests, then it became protests against foreigners, the xenophobic protest. And now you see, particularly in the Cape Flats, which has got a long history of this, you see significant degree of, uh, of violence. And people are, as they did with the xenophobic riots, they're attacking food shops. And that is what is going to happen. If a government does not enter into a real social compact with civic and with religious and with local leadership. So far, uh, Ramaphosa has been doing exceptionally well in South Africa. And the South African government have provided exemplary leadership and communication. But as time moves on, people's reserves run out, then we do stand under the threat of increased social turbulence and violence and mass protests and attacks on food shops. So I think government is very concerned about that. And for that reason, they've started to ease the regulations to try and see to what extent they can get some economic activity going to provide a way of feeding economic activity money into society. But as I said, we have a, um, 18 million South Africans are on social grants program. Government is going to increase social grants. We expect an announcement this coming Monday. That probably is the most effective mechanism for distribution because we have an established system for the distribution of cash grants in South Africa. You've called for a more unique solution to the way that Africa deals with COVID-19 and that we shouldn't follow the rest of the world. What would the right way be to tackle it for Africa? I've mentioned some of the elements, but the most important perhaps is that we need to look to community isolation, if, if that's not a contrast in terms, where leadership work with communities and try and make sure that communities police themselves and try and make sure that they stay safe and, and are isolated from external persons that may lead to infection. And you can think about it if you simply think of the image in your head of, you know, 10, 12 people staying in a small little shack in a crowded informal slum area in Kibera, in Nairobi, for example, it's much better if the community somehow in that block or area can get together. And that would require significant leadership and engagement. But um, I think uh, it is the only realistic way forward. The idea of individual distance and isolation is simply not possible in much of informal, urban, very often slum-dominated Africa. Critical to this is the issue of community engagement and leadership. Because the other component of that is that even with the best will in the world, most African governments do not have the police, military and security force agencies to be able to really enforce this 
or if they do that, they can only do that through the use of extreme violence. They are not trained and they don't have sufficient man or woman power. So I think that community, some type of a more of a collective approach is probably the only way to go. Did South Africa actually do a version of that by putting the homeless people together in those shelters? I think South Africa has more resources than most other African countries. And um, as I've indicated, because of our extensive social grants program, as well as our experiences with HIV AIDS, we're probably a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of how to respond and deal uh, with these issues. And government has rolled out the provision of water in an unparalleled session. It's quite amazing to see how the ANC has been spurred into action by the COVID crisis. But I think that the choices with regard to homeless people, there is no other way than to try and provide tents or temporary accommodation and to put them together. And and the same argument, of course, holds uh, that community to a degree can be isolated. But even there, uh, the individual isolation of those people remains a challenge. So once infection gets into that little community, of course, it creates a a very uh, aggressive increase in the levels of infection. One issue that people are worried about is the curb on human rights and um, especially the way the security forces in South Africa have been going about. Isn't there the risk that you lose this image of the government that's actually doing well by the actions of the security forces? I think South Africans are very concerned about exactly that. There's a huge outcry about, particularly around the military and to a lesser extent the police. And unfortunately, we have a Minister of Safety and Security is quite gung-ho. But I think that the pressure on government to deal with these is intense. And there's been wide publicity. And I'm not concerned about the sort of the constitutional and human rights implications. I am, as as your question indicates, much more concerned about the impact that this will have on the image of the police and the military. But the government, in a sense, is maybe a victim of its own success because it is right from the beginning said uh, it is going to adopt a very aggressive, no excuses, no holds barred campaign to try and deal with uh, and keep the national lockdown tight. And I think that in some instances, uh, particularly the military, has taken this a little bit too literally. I think they will step back from that. It is a concern, but I, I don't think it is really something that is systemic across the security agencies. Finance Minister T.J. Mbawani seems to want an IMF loan, but he does not want any of the conditionalities. Do you think South Africa would eventually have to go to the IMF because the economy is in such a deep hole? The problem is that the IMF terms of loan are much better than that of anybody else. And the world has moved on from the 1990s and 2000 when the World Bank and the IMF came with really stringent conditionalities. That really was to clamp down on the state, to reduce the side of the state, and to make the argument that it is the private sector that is responsible for growth. Now, that may be true for uh, high and upper middle income countries, but it is not true for Africa. In actual fact, the, the IMF and World Bank today have a much more positive and balanced approach. So, uh, yes, they are still vilified and they are uh, viewed with huge suspicion in Africa. And in South Africa, given the history and the ideological orientation of the ANC, Kusatu and the Communist Party, the IMF and the World Bank are seen as the high priests, of course, of neoliberal economic uh, policies. But when the cupboard is bare, then you have few choices. Now, South Africa will first turn to the 
new development bank, which is the BRICS bank, and it will look at those options. But as I've said, the problem with the, with the is that the IMF has got a deep pocket. It's got $1 trillion that is prepared to, to lend, and that the terms are, are very different to that much more concessional than we would get from, from Chinese or from any other bank. And if you're looking at short-term uh, emergency funding, then I think that the IMF and the World Bank remain a possibility for South Africa, not as a long-term structural adjustment type uh, of intervention, but uh, in, in the short term. But South Africa, because of the, the negative associations with the World Bank and the IMF, I think uh, Titu Mbuweni, the South African Minister of Finance, will think very carefully because he may set himself up for um, a real uh, significant attacks within the tripartite alliance if he decides to go that route, despite the, the favorable terms of those loans. Inside COVID-19, Trumpers News. Black communities in the US and UK appear to be disproportionately affected by COVID-19. In the UK, 35% of intensive care patients are from minority groups, it's black and South Asian, while they only represent 13% of the population, prompting a British government investigation. In the United States, a study by McKinsey has found that African Americans account for disproportionately high coronavirus deaths. Bloomberg reporter Donald Moore and host Laura Carlson delve into possible explanations for the high number of deaths among minorities in these two countries. They did a, a study of the entire U.S. of areas that they call at risk that have lower access to health care, fewer hospital beds. And what they found was those areas tend to be predominantly African-American. Off the bat, blacks, African-Americans tend to have lower access to health care. And tell us a bit more about these areas. Are there other factors that McKinsey and others have pointed to as to why people in these communities have been affected more by coronavirus? Uh, a big reason is structural. There's a term for what they call food deserts that refer to places that have limited or even no access to good quality fresh food. So, for example, Detroit for a while in the 2000s, there wasn't a single grocery chain in the city limits. So those areas tend to be overrepresented by black Americans, like usually large cities, um, you know, um, underdeveloped areas. When you don't have grocery stores or farmers markets to go to, what they end up doing is going to convenience stores or um, fast food restaurants, which are high caloric foods, lots of sugar, lots of salt, you know, junk food. And eating those foods tend to lead to things like obesity, which leads to things like hypertension and diabetes. And what about jobs in these communities? Do those also play a role? So there's been a lot of discussion over what we call uh, central jobs, jobs that have to be formed even during the lockdown to keep society running. And blacks tend to be overrepresented in those jobs. So, for instance, even though blacks are underrepresented amongst physicians, they are overrepresented amongst nursing assistants. 33% of nursing assistants are African-Americans. 40% of orderlies are African-American. 40% of psychiatric aides are African-American. So you have these positions that African-Americans take up a large share of where not only can they not socially distance from other people, but the people they interact with usually tend to be sick and in many cases have coronavirus. What was the earning gap between black Americans and white Americans um, before all this started, before the pandemic? So the most recent numbers from the Economic Policy Institute, median black wages were about 73.3 percent of white wages in 2018. So roughly three quarters of what whites make. 
black Americans tend to be overrepresented in essential jobs, but they're also overrepresented in jobs that are more likely to be laid off. So if you look at like the service industry, for instance, or retail, those jobs are essentially being shut down because of the the lockdowns in place all over the country, and black Americans tend to be overrepresented in those positions. So they're going to be one of the first ones to be laid off as a community. Can anything be done right now to curb consequences? Um, I'm thinking in terms of, say, hazard pay or or even just things like testing during the pandemic. Hazard pay definitely helps increasing essential worker salaries, gives them a boost, especially when there are a lot of African-Americans who hold two jobs. So they might have a job at a grocery chain, for instance, but then they'll lose a job as a waiter. So the hazard pay definitely helps in that regard. But from what I've seen and what I've heard talking to experts, the best way to help this is just increased testing. They've said to make sure that workers are safe, even people who are laid off are safe, or even the elderly. The best way is to find out who's infected and be able to isolate them so they don't infect others. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. And we close today's episode with this fabulous in-depth report from our partners at Bloomberg on how COVID-19 actually started. Senior editor Jason Gale talks to a fellow Aussie about where the coronavirus lived before it crossed over to mankind. Scientists believe bats are the source and may hold the clue to potential treatments and for preventing the next pandemic. The story of bats and viruses can be traced to an Australian veterinarian, Dr Hume Field. The son of a policeman, Hume grew up in various parts of the northeastern state of Queensland, where he developed a fascination for Australia's native fauna. Uh, I've always had uh, an interest in animals, and I guess growing up as a kid, I can remember uh, my parents saying, oh, Hume loves animals, he's going to be a vet. And this was really a bit of a throwaway line, because nobody in our family had ever been to university, let alone to a five-year uh, veterinary course, but but nonetheless, the sort of seed took hold, I guess, at least with me. When I caught up with Hume, he was in his home office in a leafy coastal area southeast of Brisbane. You could hear chattering wildlife and vocal pets, as well as drought-breaking rain. Hume graduated from the University of Queensland in 1976. He worked for a couple of years in a small animal practice, but his interest in wildlife led him to pursue further study in the evenings first in environmental science, then a doctorate in the mid-1990s. It allowed him to combine his love of native animals with emerging diseases at a time when the state's agricultural authorities were trying to figure out the source of a deadly horse disease. It was a virus that infected 20 racehorses stapled in the Brisbane suburb of Hendra in 1994. It's thought to have started when a mare called Drama Series was brought to the stables after she'd been grazing in a field at Cannon Hill on the other side of the Brisbane River. Drama Series died two days later, and subsequently all of the other horses fell ill. Thirteen of them died. What was especially alarming about this disease was that it crossed the species barrier. A trainer and another person tending to the horses became ill with a flu-like illness within days of Drama Series' death. The stable hand recovered, but the trainer died of respiratory and kidney failure. The virus was eventually isolated and named Hendrovirus after the suburb where it was found. Hume was asked to help determine how a drama series might have caught the virus. He went searching the paddock where she'd been grazing and presumably had become infected. 
He caught rodents, possums, feral cats and reptiles and tested them for Hendra virus. When the results came back negative, he went searching for clues via the people rescuing vulnerable wildlife. Here in Australia, they're sometimes referred to as wildlife carers. So we subsequently broadened our search and started using wildlife carers as a, um, as a, a conduit, if you like, to be able to collect samples from sick and injured animals that were in their care. Uh, and it was in that process, so again, quite serendipitous that we actually sampled, we were sampling kangaroos, we were sampling possums, we were sampling the usual things, ducks, a whole range of things that would come into wildlife carers. Uh, and there were flying foxes, and we sampled some flying foxes. This was over a period of months. And lo and behold, uh, we found antibodies to Hendra virus in some flying foxes. So we looked at some more flying foxes, and then we looked at some flying foxes in uh, in captive uh, populations of zoos, etc., and and that's how we identified uh, flying foxes as being at that stage uh, a possible reservoir. Then we went on to do further studies. Eventually, uh, detected an isolated virus, etc., etc., and so now flying foxes, or at least a couple of species of flying foxes in Australia, uh, are recognised as the, the primary reservoir host of Hendra virus. Flying foxes aren't actually foxes. They're a large fruit-eating bat with a kind of fox-like face and expression. They weigh up to a couple of pounds and their wings can span more than three feet. The finding of Hendra virus in bats was important not just because it helped identify the pathway by which horses and people were being infected. It also made scientists alert to other viruses bats could potentially carry. About a year after Hugh made the discovery of hantavirus in flying foxes, another opportunity to explore the ecology of viruses in bats presented itself, this time in Malaysia, where pigs and pig farmers were getting sick. By mid-1999, more than 265 people had fallen ill with encephalitis or inflammation of the brain. Of those cases, 40% were fatal. There were also 11 cases of either encephalitis or respiratory illness, including one death in neighbouring Singapore. Scientists found the viral source. It was named Nipah virus, which it turned out was from the same family as Hendra virus. Hume was asked to help investigate the source. We wanted someone who, was, uh, who might be able to guide uh, and work with them to find out the natural reservoirs of Nipah. So knowing what we knew about Hendra and bats, then we uh, immediately focused, not exclusively, but we certainly focused on flying foxes in Malaysia. Uh, and it wasn't too long before we found evidence of, um, of uh, Nipah virus in species of flying fox there. Just as Hendra virus did, the discovery of Nipah underscored the risks that emerge at the interface of wildlife, farm animals and humans. Professor Trevor Drew is the director of the Australian Animal Health Laboratory at Geelong, just outside of Melbourne. It's carried out key research on both Hendra and Nipah viruses. According to Trevor, the emergence of Hendra and then Nipah identified the ways in which bat-borne viruses can spill over and infect other species. And Nipah virus was a disease also of uh, fruit bats in Malaysia initially, and uh, that virus uh, got into pigs because the, uh, they were starting to put pig farms into more forested areas and the faeces from the bats uh, got into the pigsties and, and was thought to have infected the pigs that way. And it killed hundreds of, uh, of pigs, if not thousands of pigs. 
Nipah isn't just confined to Malaysia. Over the past decade, it's caused outbreaks in India and Bangladesh that have killed dozens of people. We also now also, also know from uh, uh, incidents in Bangladesh of outbreaks of Nipah virus that you don't need the pig, that the uh, that the bat can actually also infect humans directly via drinking out of uh, vessels of palm sap that are uh, put onto the tree to to harvest the palm sap, and uh, people drink this palm sap, but so does the bat, and they will come down, and the saliva from the bat can contaminate the the palm sap and infect the human. Directly. So we know that, uh, that that is one incident, but certainly in Malaysia now, they're very, very careful not to have pig farms uh, near bat roosts. An even more dramatic outbreak occurred just a few years later. Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, emerged in southern China in 2002. It's a deadlier cousin of COVID-19 that quickly spread across the world. Hume Field was asked to help investigate its source. And because of our experience with bats uh, and, uh, and the virus and the virus and you know, a growing awareness that, that there seemed to be something special about bats and uh, these spillover viruses, then you know, we hypothesised that bats may play a role in the, um, the origins of SARS. And so we went down that track. It's interesting to reflect on the significance of the discovery of uh, species of bats and flying foxes as the natural reservoir of hemorrhoids uh, because really that finding uh, I think has potentially coloured the identification of bats or, or, or you know sort of underlying the identification of uh, various species of bats being associated with, with this suite of other emerging diseases that we've seen The group that Hume just referred to also includes Ebola viruses and lysivirus, which causes rabies, as well as a number of coronaviruses, including SARS, and most likely the one responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic. So what is it about bats that makes them such great virus vectors? Bats are are quite unique uh, if you think about it in terms of them being a mammal that can fly. So so, um, bats are mammals, they produce milk, they suckle their young, they've got this amazing uh, evolutionary um, adaptation or ability to be able to fly, so they're highly mobile. They also typically live in large populations, colonies, roosts, whether it's the big fruit bats or flying foxes, whether it's small micro bats in caves. And and typically these uh, groups have mixed species as well. Um, They're relatively long-lived animals as a a taxa. You know, flying foxes certainly uh, recorded, I think, in captivity to live well into 20s. Certainly wouldn't live that long in uh, nature, but certainly they live for years. Uh, So all of these factors are very attractive for mammalian virus survival and dissemination, if you like. According to Hume, bats have evolved and adapted to coexist with the viruses that infect them. And and so the thinking was that, well, you know, these are just viruses of bats and the bats are used to them because they've evolved with them. And that's why the bats don't get sick with these viruses. But if they spill into other naive 
biologically naive species then that they have a dramatic, typically dramatic uh, and often fatal infection. But more recently people have dug a bit further to try to understand if there is indeed something else going on with bats and it seems that, that there isn't. Hume now works as a science and policy advisor with the EcoHealth Alliance. It's a New York-based NGO that works to protect wildlife and public health from the emergence of disease. Spillover events are becoming more risky. Bats, as we heard, are coming into closer contact with farm animals. But they're also coming into closer contact with humans. A key reason for that is that bats are losing their habitat. Critically, they're losing their natural food source. What you're hearing is the sound of grey-headed flying foxes roosting. It's dusk and I'm sitting on a grassy bank of the Torrens River in the centre of Adelaide, the capital of South Australia. I'm literally a stone's throw from the University of Adelaide, my alma mater behind me, and the Adelaide Zoo on the other side of the river. This is a popular place for the 20,000 bats hanging upside down from the eucalyptus trees above me. It's a familiar place for Dr Mark Shipp, Australia's chief veterinarian who is based in Canberra, but also grew up in South Australia. Mark is the president of the World Organisation for Animal Health. He told me that bats have taken up residency in Adelaide and other urban centres, but not by choice. Yes, uh, almost every uh, city in Australia now has uh, a resident uh, roost of, uh, of flying foxes and the fruiting and the flowering trees that these uh, bats normally feed on have been largely removed uh, from uh, rural Australia and so they've been uh, you know, forced in, into urban centres and suburban uh, parkland where there is uh, some flowering trees and some fruiting trees, but these are, are not the preferred diet of uh, the, the flying foxes and they're putting those flying foxes under stress. We've seen a number of incidents in Australia over recent years with large-scale mortalities of flying foxes due to heat events. Uh, here in Canberra we had a large hailstorm event which uh, killed uh, over 300 uh, flying foxes. It reflects that uh, they're, they're in centres where they would normally not be present and that they're under stress when they're in those uh, centres. There's another concern with bats roosting in places like this, where horses are being kept less than a mile from here. For us, uh, the, the concern is that uh, where we have uh, parkland, we often have horses. And we know that uh, flying foxes can transmit uh, Hendra virus uh, to horses and that uh, those horses in turn can transmit that uh, virus to uh, humans. And, th and that's a fatal disease of both horses and of, of humans. And then, and then uh, that there is the, the risk that uh, the, the bats themselves will, will transmit directly uh, to human populations and there are a number of coronaviruses and other viruses that uh, bats carry and, and can transmit to the human population. But there are other consequences of the loss of bat habitat. While these animals can carry some pretty nasty viruses, they perform functions vital for the Australian ecosystem. They uh, play very important roles in terms of insect control, of pollination and of uh, seed dispersal. The, the role that they play in keeping down uh, insect numbers which you know, and, and insects uh, tra can transmit disease, particularly in uh, northern Australia, is, is very important. 
and then the, the role that they play in uh, pollinating uh, plants uh, as they move between uh, plants and then dispersing seeds when they eat fruits and, and disperse the seeds so that those uh, plants become established in other areas is very important and is a role that no other uh, participant in, in the ecosystem can play. In the mammalian world, lifespan is generally proportional to body size and metabolic rate. Bats defy both these rules. One bat species weighing just 7 grams or a quarter of an ounce can live for more than 40 years. It's one of a number of quirks of these critters. Professor Linfa Wang has been unlocking the secrets of bats since the 1990s. He was the scientist who isolated and characterised Hendra virus and identified its virological cousin, Nipah. Actually, it was Linfa who named the genus to which they both belong, Henipavirus. Back then, he was working at the Australian Animal Health Laboratory just outside of Melbourne. He now heads the Emerging Infectious Diseases Program at Singapore's Duke and US Medical School. For the past 13 years, he's devoted his career to studying bat biology and bat immunology, particularly its defence against viruses. He's brought a number of researchers along with him in Australia, Singapore and now China, where he was born and did his undergrad degree. In scientific circles, Linfa is sometimes known as the Batman. People give me the nickname of Batman. That I, I try to correct them to say, I actually don't study bats, I study bat virus. Linfa serves on the World Health Organization's Emergency Committee, advising the Director General on the current COVID-19 pandemic. It's a reflection of the knowledge he and his 20-person lab have amassed on these animals. And we have been focusing on the question of why bats. Why bats are so different? Why they can carry so many virus and themselves do not get sick? And why bats live so long, consider their living environment and also the stress they have during flight and also the pattern they're exposed is much, much more than a non-flying mammal. It turns out that the immune system of these flying mammals is different to that of terrestrial mammals. Bats react to infections at an earlier stage, arresting them before they cause any disease. That enables bats to avoid the damaging inflammatory immune response other mammals, including humans, often mount in response to virulent infections. So our current working hypothesis is that bats have a much better defense versus tolerance. Pathologists studying COVID-19 and other pathogenic viruses have observed that when the body initially recognises an infection, various white blood cells that consume pathogens and help heal damaged tissue act as first responders. In some severe infections, the body's effort to heal itself may be too robust, leading to the destruction of not just virus-infected cells, but healthy tissue. It's that inflammatory response that ends up being deadly. Bats don't suffer the same fate. Bats can defend themselves, launch this inflammation, but they don't go overboard. Okay, so this is a, a very big area of research and I think we human can learn. Linfer says he's convinced bats offer important insights into the regulation of the immune system that may inform ways the human body can better tackle COVID-19 and other viral diseases. So my slogan now is, uh, my study is basically learning from bats. Bats have so much to teach us. For one thing, Linfa is intrigued that a species of bat that weighs just 7 grams has a heart that beats more than 1,000 times per minute during flight. It flies for 5 to 8 hours daily and can live for 43 years. This is 
all down with the, the same heart, without any medication, without any you know, hygiene. You know, imagine that, right? It's incredible. It's little wonder that Linfa is working with cardiologists who study the heart muscles of bats. Just one of a number of medical disciplines he's recruited into his bat pack. I have been able to mobilize not only infection disease people, genomic people, immunologists, and the cancer biologists, and now cardiologists are collaborating with me to study bat. My personal dream, you have enough money, is to establish a bat institute. I think we have lots to learn from bat. Bats can help us identify what viruses of pandemic potential are lurking in nature, as well as ways we might be able to mitigate their threat. They're just one example of how humans are profoundly affected by what happens in global ecosystems. To anticipate, prevent and respond to disease threats like COVID-19 means taking an increasingly wide-angled look at the natural world. been episode 20 of Inside COVID-19. Access every episode by subscribing on Spotify or iTunes or downloading the BizNews podcast app in the Apple App Store. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.